I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Exodus. Exodus chapter number 3. Exodus chapter number 3. I'm going to read the first 12 verses of Exodus 3. Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of God. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and... See this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. When the Lord saw that, he turned aside to see God, or to see. God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, but off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father. God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. What is the Old Testament? That sounds like a really fundamental question, but how you answer that question will determine the way you view your Bible. Is the Old Testament uh, just a a history book that contains some interesting stories of the people of God in a former dispensation? Is it just a, a book of narratives that imparts to us some moral lessons and Uh, Some practical instruction for us to live our lives? Is that what the Old Testament is? Was it a history book that progressively became Christian scripture? Was it a history book that became Christian scripture because it was adopted by the New Testament? Well, many think uh, these thoughts concerning the Old Testament. And for these reasons, you have some who are um, 
in a very extreme camp that will even go so far as to say things like we need to unhitch the Old Testament from our faith entirely. But yet there is a more subtle form of um, denial of the, the place of the Old Testament in our Christian lives uh, that will just relegate it to a book that is um, subsidiary and of a different form and of a different substance and is only useful insofar uh, as we see it repeated, perhaps, in the New Testament. Uh, but the large majority of it is, is uh, useless uh, information that, that was uh, maybe pertinent to the people of God of old, but not really so much for us today. Well, beloved, let me remind you that God did not give us two books, but he gave us one book. Amen. One book that has two testaments. And the Old Testament listen, is Christian scripture that stands as a witness to Christ independently from Jesus and the apostles' interpretation of it in the New Testament. What what did I just say in that long sentence there? I said that the, the Old Testament is and always has been Christian scripture. When the Old Testament was written, it was Christian scripture. Before the New Testament was written, the Old Testament was Christian scripture. Before Jesus and the apostles explicitly demonstrated for us how the Old Testament is Christian scripture, it was still Christian scripture. Jesus says this very helpful statement in Luke chapter 24, Luke 24 and 27, on the Emmaus Road, when he's talking with those two disciples after the resurrection, you remember that Jesus said, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets. When, when Jesus says that, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, don't think about uh, the canonical structure of the Old Testament as we have it today. Uh, the, the order of your books in the English Bible was not the original Hebrew order of the books of the Bible. And so when, when Jesus says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, what he means that is beginning from the beginning of the Old Testament and all the way to the end of the Old Testament, he expounded unto them in what? All the scriptures. The things concerning himself. Now let me ask you a very profound question. Jesus tells us there that all the scriptures, all of the Old Testament points to him, right? Well, when did that become true? Did that only become true when Jesus said that it was true? Or was it already true? Well, it was already true. Uh, Types and shadows and pictures don't become types and shadows and pictures just when the New Testament tells us that they're types, shadows, and pictures. They're already types, shadows, and pictures of which, as it pertains to the Old Testament, Christ is the substance. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not limited to seeing Christ in the Old Testament only in passages where the New Testament explicitly says that he's present. You don't have to find a New Testament passage that says, here is Christ in the Old Testament, to say, there he is. But you can see him in the Old Testament, perhaps in a passage where the New Testament doesn't even Uh, mention him being in. If you use a a faithful, redemptive, historical, 
Christological hermeneutic. Uh, That is a hermeneutic that understands that Christ is the sum and substance of the entire Bible. That he, he is what Moses wrote about. Uh, he is what David sang about. He is what Isaiah prophesied about. Amen. And of course, he is what all of the apostles in the New Testament wrote about as well. In the Gospels, in uh, the book of Acts, and in all of the epistles. Uh, a faithful, redemptive, Christological hermeneutic allows us to see Christ all throughout the Old Testament because the Old Testament is all about Christ. Now you say, well, who would be opposed to that? Uh, Well, um, there are a number of conservative evangelical scholars that would would push up against this. Uh, They would uh, favor a, a more grammatical historical hermeneutic which certainly we, we don't reject and discount, and we see a, a, a place uh, for the importance of, of a survey of the Old Testament through a lens that is grammatical and historical. Uh, and, and what do we mean by grammatical historical interpretation or a grammatical in- historical hermeneutic? We mean uh, that, we, that we look at a passage in the Old Testament, we look at an Old Testament text, and we, we only examine it on the basis of its grammar and its historical context and the intent of the human author. That's certainly where we must begin with the Old Testament. Uh, But you understand that Scripture has two authors. There is the human author, but the human author uh, is, is, is very limited in his foresight and very limited in his canonical perspective. So if, you, if all you have is a strict grammatical historical hermeneutic, then you can only read the Old Testament with the limited knowledge of that specific Old Testament writer, but you cannot read the Old Testament with the broader perspective of the divine author. And that is how you really need to read all of your Bible. When you read Exodus chapter 3, or Genesis, or Deuteronomy, or for Samuel, or Isaiah, or Malachi, or wherever you're reading in the Old Testament, you need to read that in light of everything else God has revealed to you, because antecedent revelation oftentimes illumines preceding revelation. And so we don't want to ever limit our interpretation of the Old Testament with a hermeneutic that discounts the intent of the divine author. This dramatically affects the way we preach the Old Testament. How do do we preach David and Goliath? What is the the ultimate message of David and Goliath? Is it uh, an inspiring story about an underdog who took on a a big villain and overcame the odds and won the victory. Is that what it's about? Is David and Goliath uh, about you and your life and how you need to, to fight the Goliaths in your life? Or is David and Goliath first and foremost 
about a shepherd king who conquered the enemy of his people. That's what David and Goliath is about. And that is the the hermeneutic that allows us to see Christ in that story. The Old Testament, though we do learn stories and character traits and and moral lessons and and we, we see these things in the Old Testament, that's not first and foremost what the Old Testament is about. First and foremost, what the Old Testament is about is Jesus Christ. How do we preach Exodus 3? You, you've read this story before, the story of Moses at the burning bush. What is this story about? Is it just an inspiring story uh, about a shepherd who had a spiritual experience in the desert? Is that what it's about? Is that all it's about? Is this is, is the application for you to... to to look at Moses and and, and see what Moses did here and say, well, I need to be more like Moses? No, brothers and sisters, this text is a self-revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ as he relates himself to his people. I want us to, to look at Exodus 3 in that way, as a revelation of Jesus Christ to us, through the, the shadows, through the substance of, of this passage. As we do that, as we keep Christ at the center, and as we read our Old Testaments Christologically, we can learn a lot of lessons from the different events and characters in the Old Testament. But God does not want you to be more like Moses. God does not want you to be more like David. God does not want you to be more like the Apostle Paul. He wants you to be more like Jesus and only more like those characters insofar as they are like Jesus. So let us look now at Exodus 3 with the help of the Lord still uh, ailing and, and, and struggling with my, my throat this morning and I, I find that to be uh, no coincidence that we're going to now look at a man who we know uh, had some s- speech impediments this morning as I struggle to speak to you in the flesh, uh, but may the Spirit overcome and show us some things from this passage. And we want to be looking especially at Christ's revelation of himself as he relates to his people. So what is he for us and how does he reveal himself to us in this passage? Well, number one, I want you to see that Christ is the pursuer of his people. He's the pursuer of his people. Notice in verse number one, Moses is keeping the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, and he's, he's on the backside of the desert, and he's coming up to the mountain of Horeb. We find here that Christ finds Moses as he is living in obscurity as a shepherd in the desert. The life of of Moses is very interesting. He's he's one of the greatest types of Christ in the Old Testament. Moses' life can be neatly divided into three 40-year periods. For the first uh, 40 years of of Moses' life, uh, he lived in Pharaoh's palace, 
And then he spent 40 years in the desert. And then he will spend 40 years leading the people of God. So when we come to our text in Exodus 3, Moses is 80 years old. He's a prime candidate to be forgotten by the world. Uh, he, he has left uh, the place of prominence. He, he, he could have stayed in, Pero, in Pharaoh's palace. But he has, he's left that place of prominence and now he's living in obscurity. 80 years old. Well, it doesn't matter how obscure you may seem to the world. It doesn't matter how forgotten you may be by society. If Jesus wants you, he'll pursue you. Amen. And so we find that Moses is here in the desert. And in verse 2, we see that the angel of the Lord appeared unto him. Now, the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus Christ. You will find him all throughout your Old Testament appearing as the angel of of the Lord. The word angel simply means messenger. Jesus is described in the New Covenant or in the, in the New Testament as the angel of the covenant. And so there's a sense in which we can see him as the archangel, as the, the, the supreme angel, the supreme messenger. Hebrews says that God in sundry times and diverse manners spake unto us in times past by the prophets, but in these last days, how has God spoken to us? By his son. So Jesus Christ is, is God's greatest message to the world. The, God's greatest revelation of himself to the world. The angel of the Lord, the second person of the Godhead, appears to Moses. And, and notice how he appears to Moses. He appears to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Again, uh, if you, if you uh, don't have a proper Christological hermeneutic, you, you'll fail to see the significance of this. You can read commentators who will talk about what kind of bush this was and how uh, it, it wasn't a, 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 uh, a tall tree, but it was just a, a humble thorn bush. And um, many will, will say that this burning bush is a picture of God's people, the bush would be God's people, just a humble little thorn bush, and the, the fire would represent the, the flames of persecution, and they will, they will preach it in the sense of, well, though the church, though the people of God endure tribulation and endure persecution, yet they're never consumed, they're never burnt up. The issue with that is that in the Old Testament, fire, especially in the book of Exodus, is a symbol of what? It's a symbol of the presence of God with His people. He, he led them by a pillar of fire. So what should we make of this, this bush that's burning but is not consumed? Well, we, we find that as Christ pursues us, as Christ reveals himself to us, as Christ communes with us, as Christ is in the midst of us, it makes his presence in, in the center of us, that the presence of the, the Holy Son of God should consume us. 
We should be burnt up by the flames of His glory. We should not be able to withstand the, the, the heat of His majesty. But yet the bush is not consumed. What a beautiful picture of Christ in the presence of His people that Moses was then seeing. And we find that this picture will become a promise later on in the chapter as God uh, will promise to be with Moses. Notice in verse 3, Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. This is how Christ pursues us. He, he, the Bible says that, that God makes us willing on the day of His power. How does Christ pursue us? Does Christ hunt us down and arrest us and chain us and drag us kicking and screaming into, into heaven? No, he, he makes us willing. He, he reveals Himself to us. He allows us to see how beautiful He is and how lovely He is and what happens when our souls, through the power of the Spirit, see the, the beauty and the majesty of Christ. We want more of it. We want more of it. So Moses says, I will turn aside and and see this great sight, how the the bush is not burnt up. This is not only how he saves us, but it is also how he keeps us saved. You see that in the Christian life? What is it that keeps you going in the Christian life? It's not a fear of hell. If it is... You're not living the Christian life. It's a life of slavery and drudgery. To think, well, I've got to keep reading my Bible to keep myself saved. I've got to keep going to church to keep myself saved. I've got, got to keep fighting sin to keep myself saved. No, how does Christ keep you saved? By keeping you in love with Himself. Amen. He keeps you saved because you might think, yes, sin is tempting. Yes, there's still some things within me that uh, want to go back to that, but I, I, the love that I now have for Him, so much greater. I want more of that. I want to see more of Him. I want to know Him better. Know more of Him. We see, that's the, that's the statement of the Apostle Paul. I pointed this out to you before. In, in some of his later writings, as he gets to the end of his life, what an astonishing statement when Paul simply says that I might know Him. I might have a deeper fellowship with Him. I pray that that is your desire. I pray that you, you continue on in the Christian life and you fight spiritual warfare and you wage against sin and you pursue holiness. Not because you're afraid of somehow uh, going to hell. Uh, not because you're afraid of, uh, of, of consequences of disobedience, but because you want more of Him. More of him. So Moses turns aside to see this great sight. And then notice in verse 4, when the Lord saw that, he turned aside to see. He calls out to Moses from the midst of the bush. And he said, Moses, Moses. Biblical theologians have, have pointed this out as well, that when we see a name repeated... Uh, we see this in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, when, when Jesus speaks so kindly to Martha, and He says, Martha, Martha, and He repeats that name. He receives this, this is a call of, of love and affection, Moses, Moses. 
We also note that it is a it is a personal and it is an intimate call. This is how Christ pursued you. See how this really opens up your Old Testament? This is how he pursued you. He he revealed himself to you as the God who is not distant, as the God who is not aloof, as the God who is not far off, but as the God who enters into your life and, and, and burns in the brightness of his glory in your heart and makes you desire more of him. And then he calls you by name, personally, intimately, individually. He knows you. Moses says, here am I. Here am I. There's a difference between here am I and here I am. Do you know what the difference is? Here I am is a statement about location. God was not asking Moses where he was geographically, locationally. Here here I am, but here am I. It's more of a revelation of availability, of surrender, of, of, uh, of coming to the one who is pursuing. It's the same answer, by the way, Isaiah gives in Isaiah chapter 6. Which you, do you see the parallels? Well, what's going on in Isaiah 6? A glorious manifestation of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ, then fiery coals that come a sense of, of, uh, of purification, and then a response from Isaiah, here am I, here am I. This is how Christ pursues his people. This is him revealing himself to us. Secondly, I want you to see that Christ is the purity of his people. Notice in verse 5, and he said, draw not nigh hither, That means, don't come any closer, Moses. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet. Take your shoes off. Now, here is, again, this is why I don't say we just need to totally discount a a grammatical hermeneutic and a historical hermeneutic because we need to understand something about the customs of these days uh, that that to remove your shoes when you entered into a place was to was to show reverence and respect for that place. Um, when, I, when we went to India, we, I, everywhere we went, anytime we entered into a, someone's home or a church, we were to take our shoes off, preach for two weeks barefooted. And still, in many cultures, uh, to take your shoes off before entering into someone's home is a, a sh- show of respect for their property. Right? So God says... Take your shoes off, Moses. Why? For the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. What made the ground holy? Well, it wasn't the ground inherently holy. The ground was not inherently holy. The ground was relatively holy. The ground was holy because that's where God was. That's where Christ was. In the bush. Wherever he is, is holy ground. The church is holy ground. Not this building. We may uh, leave this building someday and we'll no longer meet at 204 North Poplar Street and uh, this building may be used for some secular business or whatever else it may be used for and this building is not holy. 
But what is holy is the, the gathering, the assembly of the saints together in the name of Christ because He enters in. We, we don't have a, a, a physical, visible bush on fire in the midst of us today, but He is just as present here with us today as He was with Moses in Exodus 3. So it's holy. It's holy ground. The pursuit of Christ is somewhat paradoxical. Do you see the paradox in this text? He's pursuing Moses, and he's telling Moses to come, and he's, he's searching after him. But then all of a sudden he says, but don't come any further. You can't approach. You're unholy. Same parallel with Isaiah. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. But oh, wait a minute. Now that I've seen the Lord, I realize I can't approach Him because He's holy and I'm not. The call to approach Christ is accompanied by a sense of our unworthiness to enter His presence. Therefore, we may only approach Him in His holiness as we trust in His holiness as our holiness. The, the one we approach is the one we trust in. The, 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 one, that, the one that calls us to, to come near to Him is also the same one that says, you can't come near to me unless you come near to me on the basis of my merits. There's the, the debate, you know, does God love you just the way you are? Does he accept you just the way you are? Well, he does love you just the way you are, and he does accept you just the way you are, but he doesn't leave you that way. That's right. He, he called Moses a shepherd in the backside of the desert, but immediately with that call came a sense of Moses' own unworthiness and, and a need to be identified and united and represented by the very God that was calling him. Perhaps some of you have experienced this as well with your own call. What do you have? You have these two feelings, these two revelations that almost seem to be so contradictory. On the one hand, you, you are so filled with joy and you have, you have such a reality of God's love, but on the other hand, you are so filled with unworthiness and conviction because you realize you're a sinner. You say, how can these two things ever be compatible? I want to go to Him, uh, but I can't because I'm a sinner. This really is man's dilemma. And if we fail to preach the biblical gospel, we will fail to solve this dilemma. If we, if we preach the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, this dilemma will be very apparent. 
And there's only one solution for this dilemma. There's only one remedy to this dilemma. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there on the cross we find out how God can accept guilty sinners. And love guilty sinners. And how he can be the just and the justifier of guilty sinners. And how that we who have a sense of our sin can boldly approach him. But if we preach some... If we preach some moralistic, feel-good, platitude message of you're not really that bad, um, God will accept you and require no change in you and just take you in as you are and leave you as you were, then we fail to satisfy the, the great need that is this dilemma in the souls and conscience of men and women who have been gripped by the reality of God and the reality of their sinfulness. And so Moses sees something of the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says at the end of verse 6 that he was afraid to even look upon God. Now notice again, how do we know that this is God? The angel of the Lord, the burning bush, where's God, where does God show up in the text? Well, he's there. We see him, he's there in this bush that's burning, yet not consumed. But the, the holiness of Christ doesn't just decimate us and obliterate us, but by grace, it transforms us. By grace, His holiness becomes our holiness. You know, in the Old Testament, there were, there were ceremonial laws of uncleanness. And if if a Jew were to come into contact with something that was impure, what would happen to him? Well, he would become impure. He would become unclean. But Christ's holiness is so pervasive that when Christ comes into contact with something that is unclean, he purifies it. He cleanses it. This is first an inward, faithful trust in the holiness of Christ that makes us perfectly and fully positionally holy. The only kind of holiness that God accepts is perfect holiness. This is not uh, just a, a down payment on our practical holiness that we then will add on to throughout our Christian life and hope that by the end of it we've, we've become holy enough for God to accept. No, the holiness of Christ imputed to us is a perfect, full, complete holiness. This is how God views you. This is how God viewed Moses. If you are in Christ, He he does not see you uh, as someone who is uh, uh, partially holy and partially guilty, and He just overlooks the guilt and, and focuses in on the holiness. No, He sees you perfectly holy. You say... How can he see me that way? I'm not perfectly holy. Right. He sees you that way in Christ. But it's not merely something that's positional. It's not merely something that's that's theoretical. Because this positional holiness that, that is achieved and attained by faith then has an effect on a practical holiness in the life of a Christian. And... We know that we must be holy in the way that we approach God, 
in the way that we live before him as his people, or as Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12 and verse 14, we will not see the Lord. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no man will see the Lord. And in that verse, in Hebrews 12, he's not talking about the, the, uh, the positional holiness that we receive through Christ, but he's talking about the practical holiness that we pursue in our Christian life. And he says, if you're not pursuing holiness in the Christian life, you will not see the Lord. Say, that sounds like a, a, it sounds like a, a works-based salvation. No, it's not a works-based salvation, but it is a salvation that produces works. Because your pursuit of holiness in the Christian life is fueled and, and propelled by your position as perfectly holy in Christ. Such is the case with Moses. Aren't you glad that Christ is our purity? That you are not your own purity? That you are not responsible for purifying yourself? Aren't you glad that the church is not your purity? That you you don't have to take communion 80% of the 100% percent of times we take it throughout the year otherwise you're not going to be pure enough well, Christ is your purity he is the one that, that grants you a purity that is acceptable before God and also that practically purifies you throughout your Christian life notice thirdly that Christ is the promise of his people notice in verse 6 Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is the verse that Jesus uses in Mark chapter 12 and verse 26 to defend the doctrine of the resurrection. I mean, don't you see it? Isn't it just so obvious? There's the resurrection right there in that text. No, you're looking at me and you're saying, where in the world did Jesus get the resurrection from this text? Well, he got it through a Christological, redemptive hermeneutic in interpreting the Old Testament. Jesus was debating with the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a branch of of Jewish tradition. You had the Pharisees and you had the Sadducees. The, the, the Pharisees, if you want to look at it this way, the Pharisees were your, uh, your hardcore legalistic uh, religious bunch. Your Sadducees were your modern day liberals. They denied uh, spiritual realities. They denied angels and demons. They denied the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. That's how we were taught to remember that. In Bible college, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in defending the doctrine of the resurrection, you know, which, which they came up to Jesus and they used this, this just really silly hypothetical situation. Remember? You remember the situation? There's a woman who had seven husbands and she survived all. We know that's a hypothetical situation because no woman would ever survive seven husbands. <laughs> 
And they said, well, in the resurrection, you know, who, who's her husband going to be? And Jesus said that God was not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, and he appealed to this verse. Well, I don't know about you, but as I'm reading this verse, I'm thinking to myself, well, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I mean, they're dead. This verse proves the exact opposite of what Jesus was trying to prove with this verse. Mm. You remember that passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15 when, or, or in 1 Corinthians 15 and then in, again in 2 Thessalonians when Paul is talking about the doctrine of the resurrection and he says that the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now think about that, that phrase, dead in Christ. They're not just dead, they're dead in Christ. They're dead in someone who is eternal. So there's a sense in which they're not really dead. Even in death, we are united to Him. And death cannot separate us from Him. And just as sure as Jesus rose from the dead, so too will Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and everyone else who has ever possessed faith in Christ rise from the dead. Amen. So the, the Sadducees would have thought to themselves, what do you mean Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They're dead, Jesus. He would say, your problem is you're not reading the Old Testament Christologically. You're not seeing that they are united to me in faith, and though their physical bodies might be laying in the grave, they are not dead. They're, in fact, they're more alive now than ever. And they're fodder for the resurrection. This text is a promise. Christ is the promise of his people. He is promising us that he will always be our God and we will always be his people and nothing will separate us from him. When do you receive eternal life? Receive eternal life the moment you believe. That means whatever we call death cannot be uh, in the fullest, most extreme sense a total and complete death because someone who has eternal life cannot fully die death of the body but when a saint goes to sleep in the Lord which is another biblical terminology they're not dead they're more alive than they've ever been and there's yet coming a day when all those who are dead in Christ shall receive the fullness of this promise and shall be with him in body, soul, and spirit. Amen. Fourthly, what else does Christ reveal about himself in this text? He reveals to us that he is the protector of his people. Notice in verses 7 through 10. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. 
and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey unto the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now if you read those verses with a a strictly grammatical hermeneutic, grammatical historical hermeneutic, they're wonderful, glorious verses. God has heard of the afflictions. He's seen the sorrows of his people in Egyptian bondage and he's going to come down and he's going to deliver them out and he's going to part the Red Sea and he's going to lead them out. What do these verses sound like when we see Christ in them? I want you to look at verse 7. I'm going to read these verses Christologically to you. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in the bondage of sin. And I have heard their cry by the reason of that sinful, depraved taskmaster, for I know their sorrows because I came from heaven and dwelt among them in a body yet without sin, and I can identify with them, and I can understand them, and I've been tempted at all points like as unto them. Verse 8, and I'm come down, down from heaven, down from my glorious throne at the right hand of the Father, down from my unbroken fellowship and communion with Him, down from the splendors of heaven. I'm come down to deliver them out of the hand of sin's bondage. By going to the cross of Calvary, where I will perform and accomplish a greater exodus. And it won't be the the Red Sea that will be split open. It will be my body that will be split open. And it will be my blood that will flow down from the cross. And my blood will satisfy the wrath of God. And my blood will secure their pardon. And my blood will deliver them. And I will bring them up out of that kingdom of darkness, out of that enslavement to sin, I will bring them up unto a good land, flowing with grace and with mercy. Do you see it? Do you see how this passage, this this is not just a historical narrative. It is that. The Exodus is a, a true, literal, historical event. Yes and amen, but it's not just that. It's an event that pointed to a greater reality. Verse 9, Now therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me. And I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore. I will send thee unto Pharaoh that thou mayest bring forth my people out of the children of or children of Israel out of Egypt. What a call on a humble shepherd. Here, Jesus tells Moses, you are are going to go in to the palace of the most powerful man in the world and you're going to demand that he lets my people go. Well, not only is Christ the protector of his people, Christ is also the power 
of his people. We see this in verses 11 and 12. Uh, Notice how Moses responds to this call. Uh, A lot of preachers, uh, I feel, are are way too hard on many of the Old Testament characters, uh, Moses included. And I've I've heard it preached that in verse 11... Moses was uh, doubting the call of God upon his life and uh, you better not doubt the call of God upon your life and if God calls you to something, don't sit around and make excuses. And Moses was sitting around making excuses because Moses says in verse 11, Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh? Is this an excuse? Or is this the perfectly expected, plausible, normal, anticipated response of someone that has grasped something of the glory of God, the magnitude of of God, and the, the weight of doing anything for His honor and glory. Anyone who's ever felt a call to serve God and has not had some sense of their own unworthiness better check their pride to think that I'm all that in a bag of chips to think that I have uh, enough worthiness and enough ability and skill or whatever the case may be to step up to this task so Moses said God I am inadequate And notice how God doesn't respond. God doesn't say, oh Moses, you're being too hard on yourself. Moses, you need to believe in yourself. You need to have some more self-esteem. You need to live your best life. No, Moses says, God, how can I serve you? I am so inadequate and so unworthy. And God says, of course you are. You're not adequate, but I am. You're not worthy, but I am. You're weak and powerless, but I'm strong and powerful. In verse 12, and he said, Certainly I will be with thee. I will be with thee. Yes, Moses, I'm, I'm sending you to go and to talk to Pharaoh. But guess what? I'm coming with you. I'm not going to send you uh, on your own to, to go and tell the most powerful man in the world to let my people go. Sometimes you, you, you hear a sermon and you think to yourself, that boy was up there by himself today. And what we mean by that is, God was not with him. God was not in that message. God was not ministering through him. And we sing to him. Brethren, we have met to worship. All is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. Christ says to us in John 15, Without me, you can do nothing. But with me, you can do all things. Do you feel that perhaps you've been called to do something that you are unworthy to do? Well, let me let you in on a, on a secret. The Christian life itself is too much for you to do 
in the strength of your own flesh. Forget some uh, big exploit for God. Simply waking up in the morning and loving God and loving your neighbor is something you cannot do in the flesh. But the God who has come down and who has died for you on the cross of Calvary and who has brought you out of sin's bondage, He's not left you to live the Christian life on your own. But He has said, I will be with you. I will be with you. He said that to you. He said that to His church. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel to every creature. Baptizing disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And lo, I am with you always. He's with us. Not just with us in the sense that He's present, though that is very true, but He's with us in the sense that we are on His side. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief and pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. He faithful will remain. He's the power of His people. In fact, your inadequacies Weaknesses and deficiencies may be the very thing that fit you for service. Because in those things, Christ is made strong. Christ is glorified. Christ is seen as all-sufficient. So it was with Moses. So it is with us. Notice, lastly, Christ is the preservation of His people. Verse 12, He says, This shall be a token unto thee. What does He mean? He says, says, I'm going to give you a promise that you will be successful in your calling. Here's the promise. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, Ye shall serve God upon this mountain. Moses, don't worry about failure. You will succeed. You will be let out. Pharaoh will let my people go. They will be delivered. And and when they are, you will worship God upon this mountain. It could be a reference to Mount Horeb or it could be a reference to Mount Sinai. But that's not the point. The point is God's faithfulness in accomplishing what he's called us to. Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt unto Mount Sinai. But Christ has led us out of sin's bondage and He is taking us to Mount Zion. He's taking us to New Jerusalem. And there are times along our journey in the Christian life when we feel like we're not going to make it. When we feel like we just can't go on. When we, we want to be like the, the first generation of Israelites and we want to say, well, Lord... We, we just can't eat the manna anymore. We just can't do it anymore. It, we're getting weary. We're getting tired. But the arrival at the destination is not owed to our ability to persevere, but unto His ability to preserve. He'll preserve His people. He's not 
let us out of sin to just leave us. But He's let us out to be with us, to preserve us throughout the journey and into eternity. I hope you see in this, in this passage, and you can do this with so many Old Testament passages. I hope you see that yes, there is a, a real historical narrative and there are some, some lessons to be learned from the historical characters, but ultimately what we see in the Old Testament is a picture of Christ. Is He related to Moses? And as He relates to us, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. May you see Him. May you be enraptured by this revelation of Him. And may you desire to see more of Him. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for Your goodness to us. We worship You and we praise You. And we bow before You, giving You all honor and glory and praise for everything You've done in our midst and all You will continue to do. Father, I pray that we might be able to see our Bibles the way you have written them, as the divine author, that we might see Christ all throughout the Scriptures, our Lord, our Savior, our Beloved, our Friend, who has given us promises and pledges of His continual grace and mercy. O Lord, lift up our souls, that we might behold Christ all the more. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name.